Hello, my name is Rosie Dawson and this is the Shiloh podcast. This podcast brings you conversations which explore the themes of religion, the Bible and rape culture. It always deals with difficult content. And this episode might be particularly challenging for some people because I'm going to be talking to my guest, David Toombs, about Jesus as a victim of sexual assault. David, welcome to the Shiloh podcast. Thank you, Rosie. It's really good to be here. Um, It's an unearthly hour of the morning for me. It's evening for you. Where are you? So I'm in my home. I work at the University of Otago, which is right down uh, towards the bottom of the southern island of New Zealand here in the Pacific. And my job at the university is Professor of Theology and Public Issues. I I can tell from your accent that you're you're a Brit. Um, Tell me about where you come from, religiously speaking. So religiously speaking, I'm Anglican. I studied theology at university and I was really taken by some of the ideas of liberation theology. And I've always been influenced by trying to think through Christianity and my own Christian faith in the light of liberation theology. The area of uh, your research now is on Jesus and sexual violence. And I'm really interested in how you landed on this, how how you alighted on this area of research. So uh, after you'd taken your degree in in the UK, you went to um, Union Seminary in New York, where you studied under James Cone, who was uh, a big figure in black liberation theology. Um, And then you you went travelling through Central America. Tell me a little bit about that. So in 1988, in the summer of 88, I had the opportunity to take a a trip by land down from the US through Mexico and into Central America, El Salvador and Guatemala. It was a very turbulent time in the 1980s. Um, The Sandinista revolution had been successful in Nicaragua and had brought a left-wing Sandinista party to power. The US was very concerned about the political implications for the region, that uh, left-wing ideology might spread to other countries and was providing very significant military support in El Salvador and Guatemala. So um, in both countries, there was um, more or less a civil war, particularly in El Salvador throughout the 1980s. It was relatively quiet whilst I visited, but it, it was a very conflicted society. What was it about the stories that you were hearing um, in your travels that caught your imagination, your interest? So for me, this was a chance to see liberation theology on the ground in many ways, to visit poor communities who have been influenced by the Christian understanding of social justice articulated by theologians in El Salvador like John Sabrino uh, and Ignacia A. Correa and others, and to see just why that made sense in a society that was so unequal, where where some had so much and some not only had so little, but had less and less because of the grinding poverty that that they faced. And that was probably one of the reasons that when I returned to London, uh, the idea of doing a doctorate in liberation theology so appealed to me. And you were dealing in these stories with... um state terror and the and the effects of that and and what liberation theologians had made of that or how they understood the gospel in the light of that terror and john sabrino came up with this phrase the crucified people tell me a little bit about his understanding of that so john sabrino was a basque theologian who had really given his life to working in el salvador in in a very difficult situation 
and working with another Basque theologian, Ignacio Ayer at the Central American University, the pair of them had developed this notion of the crucified people. And Sabrino explains this as thinking of people in El Salvador being crucified in, in two ways. And first of all, there are those who are crucified by the grinding poverty and the economic injustice of the country who, as Sabrino puts it, die slowly, a slow crucifixion. And then there were those who, increasingly in the 1970s and then even more in the 1980s, rose up and um, protested that poverty and some took arms as part of that protest. And the repression of those he likens to being a fast crucifixion, a quick crucifixion. And it's not only those who took arms who were crucified in that way, but also many other civilians who were also caught up in the counterinsurgency repression and crucified. So Sabrino, Ayacaria, and particularly Archbishop Romero in the late 70s, developed this notion of the crucified people to make the connection between crucifixion today in El Salvador and the crucifixion of, of Christ in first century Palestine. And what was the, what's the theological significance of doing that, of making that identification? Well, for liberation theology, one of the key principles, uh, in addition to, to a commitment to liberation, in addition to a commitment to social analysis, is to do your theology not starting with doctrine, but to ground your understanding in a, a lived experience, particularly a lived experience of struggle um, in the light of God's call to, to liberation. So it in, in some ways reverses the process or, or flips your methodology, your approach to theology, to start not from above, but from grounded experience. And then theology becomes, in Gustavo Gutierrez's words, a famous Peruvian liberation theologian, a second step that, that in the light of that lived experience, you reflect on the God of love and the God of life and the God of grace, where do you discern God's presence in that lived experience of suffering and injustice? And where is the liberation? So this is part of the reflection process to, to identify in this where the liberation would be. It, it is, of course, a, an assumption of theologians like Sabrino, Ea Correa, Romero and others that the liberation is in Christ. It is in God's love for God's people. So they're, they're not questioning in an absolute sense, where do we find God here? But they're trying to identify a more grounded understanding of what does that mean to move away from the abstraction that God loves everybody to what does it actually mean to say that God loves a poor person in El Salvador? You get these periods of um, national examination and reflection when there has been a, a tyranny like there was in El Salvador. You started to look at some of the torture reports that came out of um, that period and, and that gave you the sort of catalyst for your present research. That's right. I, I read a particularly graphic story about the Salvadoran military marching into a village uh, where there were civilians and a healthcare centre. And they arrested one of the healthcare workers. They marched her to the centre of the village and they executed her in a very violent, sexualized, and misogynistic way. 
And this was witnessed by another healthcare worker who subsequently escaped to the United States as part of uh, a sanctuary movement. And what really struck me about this story was two things. First of all, although I understood the general outlines of the execution, I didn't really understand fully why it had been done in such a sexualized way. What what was the message behind that? It was clear a message was being sent to a wider population, but I didn't understand the full dynamics. But secondly, and at least equally important, was I didn't understand the silence which seemed to surround that execution in the liberation theology that I was reading. So a liberation theology movement that was highly attentive and highly insightful on the crucified people was not focused on the full picture of how that crucifixion worked. And I wanted to get a deeper sense of the silence that went with stories like that. And I very quickly became aware that there were other stories from El Salvador and elsewhere where there was a silence on the sexualized aspect of it. So there was a very well-known case of four North American church women, one lay missioner and three nuns who had been executed in El Salvador in 1980 by the military regime because they were perceived as being sympathetic to the poor. And it was well known that in addition to being killed, they had been raped as well. But reports of this tended to focus almost exclusively on them being killed, not raped. Even in the Salvadoran Truth Commission, which came out in 93, there was still barely a mention of them being raped. And when the commissioners were asked about this, they said, well, they didn't think the rape was an important part of the political violence. It was an incidental thing. And one of the things I wanted to look at was whether this was really the case or not. What I found was very quickly, actually, sexual violence is not an incidental part of torture and state punishments of that form. It's very, very common. It's integral. As soon as you start looking at torture reports, and I started reading torture reports from Argentina, from Brazil, from Chile, Guatemala and El Salvador, you find almost immediately that there are either very clear references to sexualized violence or discrete references, sort of slightly hushed or euphemized references to sexual violence. It's, it's almost ubiquitous and not just in Latin America. This is also true for many other conflicts, including conflicts in the present time. And what function does the sexual violence serve for the perpetrators? So I think its most potent function is to humiliate the victim. It's a really powerful way of identifying and targeting the victim's identity. It, it in some ways takes the violence inside the victim that they then come psychologically to feel devalued, to feel degraded, despoiled, dehumanised and the negative effects of sexual violence can last much longer than other forms of physical punishment or beating. So so sexual violence has a very profound long-term consequence, but it also has a very strong psychological 
impact. And when it leads, as it did in so many cases, to murder, it's a it's a punishment, obviously, but it's also a message that is given to other people who might think about standing up to the regime. And that was another very clear message from El Salvador and other Latin American contexts that the torture practices couldn't be understood as just actions against an individual. They were uh, actions that sent a message to a much wider public. Even if the torture happened in private, there was still a public message because rumours leaked out and became... um, known in wider society, but in some cases at least, particularly in El Salvador and Guatemala, punishments were like the one I mentioned of the health worker. They were actually performed as a spectacle in a public place with an immediate public audience as well as a wider public audience. Well, that takes us quite um, neatly in a way, doesn't it, to the practices of imperial Rome. Um, I mean, how how did you make that, that leap? So... The strongest first connection to make was the state terror connection. So if that was the case in Latin America, it was suggestive that it was also likely to be the case in first century Palestine and the Roman Empire. And that was easy to see in the existing literature. There there was plenty in the existing literature which identified crucifixion as sending a wider public message of terror to to a wider population. Population. So, so that link was reasonably easy to make and very, very clear. Is there something in Josephus about it? He's the first century Jewish historian, isn't it? What does he say about it? So, so Josephus actually makes a reference to Titus in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 CE, um, talking, and in some ways Josephus is trying to excuse Titus, but he, he actually uses the language of it, it was meant to send a message. I might not be quoting this exactly right, but it, the intention of crucifying so many people within sight of the walls was to try and uh, get a quick resolution to the siege so that the inhabitants inside would give up uh, and recognise the might of imperial Rome because they would see these crucifixions. And I think it's in that passage that Josephus says that there were so many uh, crucifixions going on that the Romans almost didn't know what, what to do with it. So this is the, this is the siege of Jerusalem in 70 um, CE or AD, um, after which the temple's destroyed and 40 or so years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and, and so turning to um, the crucifixion of Jesus and, and the account of that in the Gospels, you see something which a lot of people just don't seem to see. Tell me what you see. So the next obvious question to raise was, well, what might be asked about sexual violence in terms of Roman practices and particularly the Roman practice of crucifixion and particularly the story of, of Jesus' passion and crucifixion? And... Looking at the texts for a reading of that with these questions in mind, I was really surprised to see that the texts are explicit on on this point. Looking carefully at uh, a passage like Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 20, we read of Jesus being handed over to the soldiers and taking him side to the praetorium after being condemned by Pilate, passed over to the soldiers, taken him. 
We read about them putting purple on him or a purple robe on him, mocking him, uh, insulting him. And then we read a little bit later that they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him. So that's a clear signal uh, that he was, when he first went into the Praetorium, was stripped of his own clothing. He was then robed with other clothing, mocked, and then stripped again. So in the Mark account, you have two very explicit references to stripping. And then there's a reference to him being taken off for crucifixion, when most scholars agree he would have been stripped again and crucified naked. And in fact, it's that stripping which usually features in the 10th station of the cross, the stripping of Jesus. That's actually probably the third stripping. And just before that passage in Mark, there's reference to Jesus being flogged. And when he was flogged, he might well have been stripped again for for that. So we've got in all likelihood three strippings in Mark's gospel. The other really significant piece of evidence which is often missed is we're actually told how many soldiers were involved in the stripping in that Mark passage. And that's in the part of the passage which talks about the whole cohort being assembled. So it's very interesting in the light of Latin American accounts where this is a very organised practice. We actually get in Mark's gospel, they assembled the whole cohort And what people, many readers might not be familiar with, because this is a very familiar passage um, to people, but might not be familiar, that a cohort would have been probably about 500 soldiers. So it's not a small number. It's a major military operation of um, public abuse, or at least abuse in front of an assembled group of hostile military soldiers. There's a stripping and Jesus is naked and he's flogged and he's mocked and he's spat at. Some might say, horrendous though that is, it doesn't amount to sexual abuse. I think they're misguided in that. I don't think they've understood the significance of a political prisoner, somebody who is weak and in a very vulnerable situation, being repeatedly stripped and mocked in front of a very hostile crowd of of soldiers. I I think somebody is perhaps processing that idea and doesn't immediately see the aspect of perhaps penetrative sexual violence, but it seems hard to me to not recognise the wider context as an obviously and overtly form of sexual abuse. And one way to take that further, if if that connection needs to be made, is, well, what else is going on with the stripping? And why is it happening repeatedly? And one of my colleagues in South Africa has helpfully explained some of the dynamics around this to me in terms of it's identifying and attacking the sexual identity and sexual vulnerability. So even though in terms of the stripping and exposure, there's physical touch, but not necessarily sexual penetration, it's still a highly sexualized act. And here in New Zealand, certainly in working with a group and talking to somebody involved in gender violence issues, she said, yes, if, if you took that to the police and said that happened to you last night, that 
cannot um, in any way be understood as not sexual abuse. In addition, in torture reports, it doesn't stop with the stripping. The stripping is the first step for a further process of humiliation and mockery and other forms of torture. Now, that's what we don't know in the text. We've got very explicit the first part of it, what, what the text said did happen. We don't know what happened after that. But it's what I think I call uh, in some of my writing the disturbing question that needs to be asked, even if we'll never know the answer to it. It's not an unreasonable question to ask in the light of actual torture reports. And it's not unusual for the Romans either. You get quite a lot of resistance to this idea, don't you? Why do you think it's so difficult for people to take on board? So I think this idea is a deeply confronting, deeply disturbing idea. Not least because it's so strange that it hasn't been recognised in Christian tradition, or, or it has sort of been recognised. The stripping of Jesus and the nakedness of Jesus on the cross are, are not new ideas, uh, and certainly not original to me. That Those ideas are fairly common and, and well recognised. What people say to me is new is me putting the language of sexual abuse on these ideas. So part of it is the strangeness to it and the strangeness of this not being said before. But I also think for some people, it raises deeply disturbing questions, some of which might be around violence against male victims. We're much less used to talking frankly and honestly about sexual violence against male victims. Um, there are perhaps questions around, well, where does this leave Jesus in the aftermath of sexual abuse in some people's eyes. I think for some people, a Jesus who has been abused is a stigmatised Jesus. It is a Jesus who is lessened. It is a Jesus who has in some ways been uh, ruined or defiled. Now, now, very few Christians would explicitly say that. And that's perhaps part of the complication that these are attitudes which are beneath the surface, which do sometimes surface in relation to other victims, survivors, but would obviously be very difficult to say in relation to Jesus. Jesus is the victim who can't be blamed, at least in certain Christian understanding of uh, blame, but nor would it really be appropriate to shame or stigmatise Jesus in the light of sexual violence. For me, this makes the idea particularly significant for the church, but because no survivor or victim of sexual violence should be stigmatised or shamed for something which was done to them. But actually, that shame and stigma as uh, at least an unconscious reaction is very, very common in wider society and in the church. And I think for some people, not necessarily all, but for some people, what's coming through is a residual stigma that's associated with victims of sexual violence. Mm. Um, it's interesting that the first article 
you wrote on this was in 1999 because I, mean, I, th- I think some people might start reading about your work and think, well, you know, this is the Me Too bandwagon. This is a, you know, new area of research because this is what everybody's talking about at the moment. But in fact, you've been talking about it for a long time. Um, and yeah, it, it, it kind of disappeared to start with a little bit, didn't it? And then got picked up later. It, it did. My colleague in South Africa, Gerald West, said he, he thinks, looking back, it was ahead of its time. So so he was aware of it when it first came out in, in 99 and various others were. Uh, but perhaps it came out at a, a time where it, it then fell under the radar. Um, and it's only really more recently that it's it's come back to, to the surface and we're doing work with it here in New Zealand. Uh, we're doing work with Gerald West and his colleagues in South Africa, uh, doing work with Jamie Reeves in uh, the UK, and with my colleague Rocio Figueroa doing work in Latin America as well. So it it is an opportunity to revisit an I- idea which has been there for some time, but, but hasn't really picked up traction. And perhaps here's an appropriate point to say that uh, we have a book coming out from SCM this month and a wonderful collection of international contributors who are really seeking to open up a wider conversation around these issues. And that book's called When Did We See You Naked? Which, of course, is an um, allusion to uh, Matthew 25. Just tell me why that... Well, it's a bit bit obvious, really, but, you know, why that title? Part of the reason for that title is because we do have this exchange, or sometimes known as the parable of judgment or the parable of the sheep and the goats, and he talks about, well, how did you treat me when? And one of the examples he gives is, how did you treat me when I was naked? And the crowd answer in the parable, when did we see you naked? Now, that's Matthew 25, and clearly in Matthew 25, Jesus is not naked. But how many people notice that that verse is followed only two chapters later in Matthew 27 with Jesus being stripped multiple times? Most people only think of Jesus being stripped the once, the the 10th station of the cross at the crucifixion, uh, suggestion in at least some Christian arts, there are only a few people around or involved. And it's quite a genteel scene, almost. Jesus is undressed rather than aggressively stripped. So picking up the verse from Matthew 25 was to flag that there is even this question that Jesus puts to his followers, when did you see me naked? And we wanted to use that as the title for a project we've been doing for a number of years to really take this question further And I suppose to explore, well, what difference does it make when you do see Jesus naked in crucifixion? And you discuss that question with um, survivors of sexual abuse in in some qualitative research, um, 12 survivors, I think, of of sexual abuse. Um, What did they make of it? So with my colleague, Rocio Figueroa, uh, who's a Catholic theologian from Peru, but working here in New Zealand, we've now done two separate studies with survivors of sexual abuse, church-related sexual abuse, Um, a a group of seven male survivors, and then separately a group of five female survivors. And the really interesting response from them to the questions we've asked in terms of, do you see this as useful and valuable to the church? 
every single one has insisted that this is useful and valuable for the church. And some of the reasons they've given in relation to that is it might help the church to see survivors in a different way, in a more dignified way, to not blame survivors, to not treat them in such negative ways. In terms of another question we asked, is this helpful for you and do you feel it would be helpful to other survivors? It's something more of a mix. For the male survivors, there were three who didn't think it would be helpful. And in each case, the primary reason for that is, well, I've left the church. I was abused in a church context. I've left the church. Others I know have left the church. We don't think this would be useful for us. Uh, others thought it, it would be helpful or perhaps it would be helpful. For the female uh, participants, uh, three of the five felt it was really profoundly helpful. In the words of one that we've taken as the title of our chapter, seeing his innocence, seeing Jesus' innocence, I see my innocence. And then one other felt like some of the men that this doesn't really speak to me and my situation and the survivors I work with. She she works with a survivors group. I, I don't think this would help them. So the takeaways from that, uh, for me, are survivors are different. One shouldn't assume that this is in any way a solution that all survivors will feel is particularly helpful to them. But it is telling that all of them gave the message that the important audience for this is the church. It, it needs to be addressed in terms of the wider culture of the church and negative attitudes that the church can show and perhaps shows much more often than it wishes to or thinks it does towards survivors of, of sexual abuse. I'm um, just putting it crudely, is it the idea that if the church understood uh, Jesus as a victim of sexual abuse, they just might be more empathic? They might be more empathic, but they would also have to really think through why that's such a difficult idea. But because recognising that confronts, I, I think for many people, uh, the instinctive resistance that they have to this. For, for many people, and, and they've said this to me, that their first reaction to this is that that lessens Jesus. Jesus is not who they thought of if that happened to him. And, and these are Christians who seek to be compassionate to others who are suffering, and yet they recognise in their own resistance to Jesus experiencing sexual abuse that there are these unresolved negative attitudes to survivors of, of sexual abuse that they themselves aren't even aware of. So for, for them, it, it's revelatory. And extending that a bit theologically, if the church is the body of Christ, then this is the body of Christ coming to understand better what happened to the body of Christ that was Christ in crucifixion. So it is a profoundly theological process related to and happening within the body of Christ. Um, we're coming up to Holy Week uh, your book's coming out just before Easter. The research that you're doing is important for the church to take on board and deal with, but is it really the stuff of Good Friday sermons? 
That's a great question. And in some ways, I don't know, because we haven't really had a sustained process of talking through these issues. Um, And I, for one, would not in any way be suggesting that every time we, we think of the cross, we necessarily focus on that was an instrument deeply connected with sexual violence and and sexual abuse. We need to get to a way of thinking, how is this remembered properly? At least one possibility, it seems to me, is that the stripping of the altar on the Maunday Thursday might be an appropriate point to make appropriate reference, not unduly graphic, but appropriate reference to the stripping of Jesus, Uh, perhaps leaving a question as to what else might have happened without going deeply into details. So I'm not saying that we have to constantly and always remember that Jesus was a victim of sexual violence, but nor can it be right for it to be completely forgotten and never mentioned either. And then there's got to be the question, where's the good news? It would be quite wrong for people to think there's an easy solution to the sexual violence of crucifixion in the promise of resurrection, which is going to be coming in just a a couple of days. Um, But there is, I think, within Christian faith, the message of hope that suffering and death is not the end. But it is, I think, what the tension between Good Friday and Easter Sunday allows us to work with and, and navigate. That whenever we speak of Good Friday, there is also an Easter Sunday to, to be acknowledged and recognised. And what that means to people will, will vary and what it means to survivors will vary. For, for some, it's, it may not be very much. For, for others, they've told me it means the absolute world to them. And that's for some at least, a positive message that they can find in this work. Thank you very much, David. Thanks, Rosie. It was really good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Shallow Podcast. Please subscribe to it at the Shiloh Podcast or one word dot captivate dot fm or from wherever you get your podcasts. Visit www.shilohproject.blog for more news and views and follow us on Twitter at Proj Shiloh. Bye for now.